0: Hello, this is Climbing on the Bookshelf. I hope I find you well, and hope you're all on a bit of a high with the road getting back to some sort of normality um, from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, As the lockdown in the UK, and probably around the world, is on a path to be controlled, and dates for normality and getting back to life um, can resume. I think it's around about sort of the end of June time, I think. Also, I hope you've been reading during the pandemic, reading more, and maybe even bought some mountaineering literature, which I would love to hear any recommendations um, that I can read too. You can get in touch with me if you want to have a look in the show notes. This episode, I'll be reading from a classic edition of mountaineering writing, Starlight and Storm by Gaston Rebefat. I think that's how you pronounce his name, but I've probably got it wrong. Um, he's a French alpinist and mountain guide. Um, he's well known to, in the first expedition to summit Annapurna I, um, and that was in 1950. This particular mountain is one of the 8000ers, and it was the first to be summited. Um, and he was also the man to climb all the six great north faces of the Alps, which are, and, um, just bear with me with my pronunciations, um, the Grand Jurassic, um the Badil, the Drew. The Matterhorn, the Chimagrande Levaredo, and of course the Iger. He started climbing when he was fourteen, and was still climbing and guiding until he died of cancer at the age of sixty-four. At the age of sixteen he became a member of the French Alpine Club, where he met legendary climber Lionel Terre. As you may or may not know, Lionel Terre wrote the book Conquistadors of the Useless, which I think is the best name for a mountaineering book. I do have a copy of it. Um, And it might feature on one of my shows. Actually, it probably will. Also, a side note, Lionel Terre, also on the Annapurna uh, team. He obtained his mountain guide qualification at the age of 21, despite the minimum age requirement of, actually, he should have been 23. That just goes to show how good he was. And in the three years he qualified, he joined the French National Ski School Um, but he soon realized that his calling was to be in the high mountains as a mountain guide in the Alps. By the 1950s he was known to be, or in the 1950s rather, he was known to be one of the foremost experts on the Mont Blanc massif where he also set several routes himself. It's from that calling he took on the north faces, recounting each face in the book with great detail and emotion And a style of writing that was unheard of at that time. I'll now read the introductory chapter which sets the tone of the book nicely and you get a feel of what comes in the chapters about the North Faces. So here we go. This book is the record of a young man's life devoted entirely to high mountains. For years while I lived in Marseille I dreamed of climbing mountains. Each winter, I found myself impatiently awaiting July. At last, the day would come for departure to Chamonix. There I would spend a few days on the tops, only to return and wait for another year. Then one day, deciding that I must live among mountains, I became a guide. Two climbs especially gave expression to these dreams of my youth. The Bar de climbed while I was a boy, and the north face of the Grand Jurassic by the Walker Spur, which I climbed in my early twenties, Coming down from the Jurassic in 1945, I found I had rid myself of my amateur ambitions and my desire for high places assumed a new quality. I left the National Ski and Mountaineering School at which I was an instructor and took up my profession as a guide. It seemed to me that I was now complete master of my destiny. A dream which comes true leads to other dreams After the Walker Spur of the Grand Jurassic, I wanted to climb the other North Faces, the Drew, Baddiel, Matterhorn, Chima Grand and Iger. When these faces were untrodden, I was still a child. Now that I was of an age to climb them, I wanted to climb them all. In this modern age, very little remains that is real. Night has been banished, so have the cold, the wind, the stars. They have all been neutralised the rhythm of life itself obscured everything goes so fast and makes so much noise and men hurry without heeding the grass by the roadside its color its smell and the way it shimmers when the wind caresses it what a strange encounter then is that between man and the high places of this planet up here he is surrounded by the silence of forgetfulness if there is a slope of snow steep as a glass window he climbs it leaving behind him a strange trail. If there is a rock perfect as an obelisk, it defies gravity and proves that he can get up anywhere. Guides are no foolhardy adventurers. They live, they do their job. Every day in summer, they get up very early to question the sky and the wind. The day before, perhaps, they were uneasy, for clouds scarred the western horizon. They feared a night of worsening weather. The Milky Way shone too brightly. The cold delayed its coming, but now, if the north wind has won the upper hand, the weather is good, the guide can rouse his client and set out. Then the rope will join together two beings who now live as one. During these hours, the guide is linked with a stranger who will become a friend. When two men share the good and the bad, they are no longer strangers. This profession might become wearisome through the repetition of the same climbs time after time, but the guide is more than a mere machine for climbing rocks and ice slopes, for knowing the weather and the way. He does not climb for himself. He throws open the gates of his mountains as a gardener opens his gates of his garden. The heights are a splendid setting for his work and climbing gives him pleasure of which he never tires but above all, he is repaid by the pleasure of the man he guides. He knows that such and such a climb is particularly interesting, that at this turn, the view is quite suddenly very beautiful and that this ice ridge is delicate as lace. He says nothing of all this, but his reward in his companion's smile of discovery. If the guide thought to win his pleasure only from his own climbing, he would be robbed of it and soon tire of the mountains. In fact, he may climb the same crack or the same slope five, ten, or twenty times a summer. He rejoices each time to new acquaintance. But his real happiness derives from a deeper pleasure, that of his kinship with the mountains and the elements, just as the peasant is akin to the soil or the workman of his materials with which he works. If a second man on the rope hesitates, the guide restores his confidence If the storm breaks suddenly, he knows its secrets. His instinct masters it. His sense of responsibility multiplies his strength tenfold and he brings his party back safe to the hut. He loves difficulty, but abhors danger, which is a very different thing. Sometimes it is true. He is killed by lightning, stonefall or avalanche. That too is part of the job. But so long as he lives, he strives to lead his rope safely. In 1950, I was with the French expedition to the Himalaya on Annapurna. As on the Akrins or the Jurasses, we were guided by the same dream. At first, we felt a pleasing sense of awe, face to face with these gigantic peaks. Then when we entered into the secret places, we walked, we explored, we climbed, and every evening we slept, the sleep of happiness under the sky of Asia. Wood fires, camps in the valleys, camps on the glaciers in the Himalaya, evenings and sunsets in alpine huts. These nights in the mountains are among the fairest memories of a climber's life, but the most lasting and often the best are the bivouacs on the earth itself, under the stars. The man who climbs only in good weather, starting from huts and never bivouacking, appreciates the splendour of the mountains, but not their mystery the dark of their night, the depth of their sky above. I know enthusiastic lads who flee the city at weekends to the forests of Fontainebleau or the Calanques. On the Sunday, they climb, but beforehand on the Saturday evening, they bivouac. Theirs is a taste for nature and the universe. On the other hand, some mountaineers are proud of having done all their climbs without bivouac. How much have they missed? and the same applies to those who only enjoy rock climbing or only the ice climbs, only the ridges or the faces. We should refuse none of the thousand and one joys of that mountain that they offer us at every turn. We should brush aside nothing, set no restrictions. We should experience hunger and thirst, be able to go fast, but also know how to go slowly and to contemplate. Variety is the spice of life. there wasn't that a great bit of writing kind of makes me want to um, be an Alpine guide it's such an incredibly it's so nicely written it's lovely and when he wrote this book in 53 I think it was he was living back in Paris Um, and there's a little kind of note um, that he wrote that kind of just sums up how he wanted to get back to the Alps. It goes, it goes like this. This evening, as I write these lines, the desire seizes me to breathe the night air for a few minutes. It is winter and cold, hemmed in between two black masses of houses, fringed by the roofs of my narrow street. The stars seem to be moving slowly as I advance. It's cold, I say to myself. That's a good sign. The snow will be hard. How stupid of me. Am I not in Paris? But my street leads onto the quays where the Seine, with its sentinel trees and the quiet night, combine to recall nature, even in the heart of the great city. It is both early and late. It is the hour when mountaineers go out to the hut terrace to scan the sky, test the wind and the snow. It is cold and cold nights mean fine days. It is the time to light the lantern and start out. Here, in Paris, I dream of high hills. Also, once you've read the North Face accounts, he's added a chapter called The Brotherhood of the Rope, where he gives you tips and techniques and what tools you need um, for the climb. But do bear in mind that this is 1954. He's given advice sort of 60 odd years previous to this. Um, There are numerous advances in all of the stuff that he says but um, the tips and techniques probably still hold true to some degree, even 67 years on. I now read the second extract, which is quite a bit shorter than the first one, um, from The Brotherhood of the Rope, where I think that when all climbers first start, these are the thoughts and dreams that they have. So, friend, come climbing with me. You'll love mountains, or rather you have a longing for them. Many times you have caught a glimpse of their beauty from the bottom of the valley but today that is no longer sufficient. You are twenty, that is to say, your body is almost completely formed. You have a good set of muscles, but not much endurance yet, so you will have to go easily at first. Perhaps you were still studying, the strength clamouring to be released. One day, probably at the weekend, you, you left the noisy streets behind to follow a little path which led you to the foot of a cliff or a rock pinnacle. Clumsily you uncoiled a rope, Feeling happy, rather scared, rather moved, you roped yourself up, or probably you were roped up. Your friend took the lead. Fearfully you watched him climb. Then an angle of rock hid him, and at that moment you realised better what a rope means. First of all, you clutched it more firmly, and when you raised your eyes to watch it rise up the rock face, this nylon thread acquired tremendous value for you, and you understand the full beauty of this link. Then the rope grew taut and you begin to climb. And you were at times glad to see this spiritual link before you in concrete form. At night you went home, having discovered a real happiness bearing on man's fundamental nature. The next day and the following days were spent thinking of the first weekend. Now the memories of the peaks you have glimpsed from the bottom of the valley and those your first climb are interwoven and you begin to plan. With the help of competent friends, you are going to acquire some equipment, fine equipment, which you are already contemplating with a loving eye. The ice axe, your ice axe, the rope, your rope, your crampons, your rucksack, and you eagerly look forward to your departure for the mountains. Now, what an absolutely amazing book. Um, If you're a lover of mountain literature, you probably already have this book, In your collection, Um, but if you don't, um, or if you're just getting into these types of books, then definitely, definitely buy this one. Um, It's a great one to have and it's a great one to reread over and over again. If you do, I promise you'll enjoy reading it as much as I do. Um, I've read it three or four times already, um, and still, it reads really well. And that's my thoughts on that book. If you like this episode, get in touch via the show notes. Um, So you've been listening to Climbing on the Bookshelf.